Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Well, Jeff, we haven't seen each other since last year. Happy New Year. Since last year. Happy New Year as we publish this close to the end of January. Well, it's still the new year. We What did we do? We canceled one episode because of Christmas, and then yep. you got the Lurgy. I got the Lurgy. I got the, the COVID finally caught up to me. So I actually spent two weeks in isolation in this room, this very two room. Two weeks. So, woo, that was fun. So today we're very happy to welcome Derek Story, who is a very well-known photographer, writer, um, podcaster, does all sorts of things. And, and I mentioned to Derek when we first joined on the Zoom that I'd seen his name for decades around the Mac area, and I'd never met him in person. So Derek, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. You have an interesting article we want to talk about on Medium, and it is entitled The Rescue Mission, a story of bankruptcy, obsolescence, and the fate of my pictures from 20 years ago. Now, we were talking before the show about, what did you say, that at CES you were comparing the number of um, photography announcements for new products a dozen years ago compared to this year, and there were 50 back then and one this year. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about the difference in the way consumers approach buying cameras, Oh, yeah. I mean, the the whole camera world has changed a lot. And uh, if you go back a dozen years to CES or any of the other photography shows that were around then, PMA, uh, there was a, a broad spectrum in the photography community. So you had, you know, snap shooters and they were buying compacts and there was a lot of competition in the compact uh, area. And then they would, some of them would escalate up to interchangeable lens cameras and on and on and on getting up to closer to enthusiasts and pros, uh, that whole chain has been interrupted now by the smartphone. So the the bottom part of the equation is a smartphone. And honestly, a lot of people stop there. And, uh, you know, because smartphones are so good. I mean, we all shoot with them. We love them. But uh, I think so the whole dynamic has changed. And I think the manufacturers sort of have realized that. And so they're approaching their sales and marketing different than they used to. And it's expensive to show at a trade show. It costs a lot of money. Maybe you could use that money in other ways, especially if your audience is smaller. Yeah, I, yeah. I pointed out that when you buy a pocket computer, you get a free camera thrown in, even if you're not looking for the camera. And that changes a lot. But now we pay attention to photography. It seems to me there's more written about photography. There are more YouTube videos about photography with people wearing backwards hats and talking about techniques than ever before. So on the one hand, there's a lack of a presence in trade shows and sales are definitely down. But on the other hand, it seems like photography is extremely popular. Oh, it's wildly popular. And uh, and I'm and I'm happy about that. And uh, I'm not uh, anti-smartphone photography at all. I think anything that that keeps us taking pictures and telling stories, which ultimately, you know, that's what photography is about. That's what writing is about is telling stories. Uh, I, I love it. Uh, and I I do miss the, the interaction of trade shows. I liked it a lot. I was always had a press badge and it was a lot of fun. But um, I'm just as engaged and interested in what's happening today in photography as I was uh, when I got into this game. So it's still fascinating. It's, it's a 
wildly changing world uh and you know it's a horse you just get on and you just stay in the saddle <laughs> and if you fall off you get back on again you get back on you get back on that's exactly it those of us that have photography is one of our revenue streams making a living i work for myself uh you know it's, it's just not the world of photography is changing it's the world that's changing too so you know we're dealing with uh, pandemics and uh drinking budgets and you know all that kind of stuff so there's a lot of moving parts to this. And uh, if you're game for it, it's a lot of fun. you got to have a stomach for change, though. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is that even though you're not seeing as much coverage of a number of cameras sold and like you were saying, you know, the compact market just basically evaporating, it's definitely true that the general knowledge of photography is way up just because it's spread so widely because of the smartphone. So people who would not really think about photography are now doing it, even if it's just a little bit beyond, I'm just going to take this quick snap of my cat or my family. Now, you know, it's like, oh, there's, the sky looks really cool. I can just pull out my camera and and snap this where before I, I think people just didn't see in that way because they just didn't have a camera or they had to switch into, you know, that dedicated, I'm going to go shoot some photos mode and get all my gear and get all my lenses and all of that. And so I think it's, it's just more broadly distributed I think so. I think, but I think there's two things going on once. I think there's a higher awareness about photography and taking pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're documenting our lives a lot more than we used to. And, you know, it doesn't cost as much, right? You don't have to buy film and processing. I also think, though, there's a false belief that people are better photographers than they really are because of computational photography. Mm -hmm. And if you were to hand them a film camera and go say, take a picture of that sky, um, you know, it probably wouldn't look nearly as pretty, uh, you know, because they they wouldn't understand some of the things that they had to do to make that happen. So I think it, it's interesting for me to see these two things happening, a uh, higher awareness about photography, but uh, maybe um, a little less uh, skill in terms of, of, you know, how to actually get the shot that you want and really depending more on what the computer's doing uh, behind the camera lens. And a large share of photography these days is people holding up a camera and taking pictures of themselves in front of something mm -hmm. or themselves with their friends. Um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe we can put this picture in the show note. I went to a village near me called Stowe on the Wold, and there was a church with what they called the Tolkien door. Apparently, J.R.R. Tolkien visited that village often, and you have this old wooden door with two trees growing up right next to it, which mm -hmm. people claim was the inspiration for the – was it the door to Moria? Mm -hmm. Was that the one? Yeah. And so I, I'm not I, a fan of the series. So <laughs> I, I go around the corner <laughs> to the front you. of the church and there are people taking selfies in front of the door. And I looked it uh -huh. up on Instagram and there are there are thousands and thousands of selfies. Yeah. And it's like, that's not photography. That's what is that? That's that. It's that's documentation. Like, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, no, it's, it, memory it's making. fun. It's fun. You know, right. I mean, it's probably uh, I don't I don't know the image myself, but it sounds like a, a cool shot. Uh, you it know? is, but it's very dark because the trees are coming over. So you really have to work on the image to get the uh -huh. right contrast. Uh, we'll show you later after the okay. show. Um, right. I converted it to black and white because I like black and white. And it's not an easy photo to get. 
Um, it, I, I should have taken a photo with my iPhone. I used my Leica Q3. I should have seen how it looked in the iPhone. Anyway, we want to talk about your story, which I find fascinating. And the reason I find this fascinating is for some reason, I kind of, every couple of months, I see a new article about archivists tr- trying to save old content, whether it be analog or digital. And the issue of dealing with formats that change and that no longer support it. So your article starts out, quietly humming on my desk right now is a white plastic 2009 MacBook laptop running Mac OS X El Capitan. It's connected to a 2012 Drobo 5D hard drive away with a flickering activity light. They are working together on a very important task. And that's what archivists have to do. They have to save the old equipment to get access to the old photos. But so what's the background to this story? Did you have like a million old photos that you hadn't updated that you wanted to access? Yeah, there's a lot of things uh, going on here, but the the short answer is i have a lot of photos in aperture libraries and uh as we all know aperture was discontinued by apple and replaced by uh, photos and instead of taking those thousands and thousands of photos i mean like i shot you know the beijing olympics i went to iceland for the lightroom adventure i i mean i had a lot of stuff in there I had a lot of a lot of work and a lot of personal stuff and I made the decision way back when that I wasn't going to go through the, the agony of trying to migrate everything out of my Aperture libraries into Lightroom or into something else. Part of the reason was I there was nothing that I liked as well as Aperture. So I said, why would I move something that maybe I'm going to be dissatisfied? And it's a lot of work to do that. So I left my Aperture libraries intact. And uh, we'll take and decide to take care of those hard drives. There was Apple always in the early days provided us with an out. And they said that you could use photos to open any of your aperture libraries and basically just go to, you know, just drag the aperture library onto the photos icon. It would open up. So you always felt like you had access to those aperture libraries. What happened was a little bit of time goes by, get a little bit of lax, not keeping up on software, all that kind of stuff. You know, we get busy, right? And a lot of things change behind the scenes. And I wanted to go and get some of those photos for an article I was working on. And what used to work didn't work anymore. And that's kind of, that was the the moment that that story was born when when I thought I had a system that would work and it no longer worked. What do you do then? So I actually haven't tried to do this in a while. Will photos no longer open aperture libraries or it just does it, but doesn't quite uh, keep the fidelity that it used to. (laughs) Uh, Sort of kind of. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) One thing you can do still is that you can import an aperture library into photos library and you know in that case you definitely want to move off in in already where you have to have some understanding of how photos works right because you have your system library in photos and if you have an iCloud account which everyone should right if they're a photographer mm-hmm. and take advantage of that situation but there are different levels of iCloud storage. And, you know, as the more you use, the more you have to pay all that. 
So you don't really want to import 200,000 images into your iCloud library <laughs> because that could be very pricey. Yeah. And, and do you really need them access to them all the time? So you want to, first of all, you have to know how to set up a separate photos library. And then you can use the import command and it does bring them in, but you lose a lot of stuff. Not so much image fidelity, but Aperture libraries, one of the joys of Aperture libraries was their structure. And uh, that all gets kind of messed up. And um, it, it's not it's not pretty. It's, it's not a, a pretty way to go. So I decided I didn't want to do that because I'm, I wanted access to all those photos. I knew I was going to lose the structure of Aperture. So I wanted to find a more modern solution instead of just using the import command in photos and doing that whole mess. I do, I'm not in love with photos anyway. I, I yeah. like it for my iPhone photography, but you know, I cannot live by photos alone. So I wanted to find something more intelligent. So what did you find that was more intelligent? So what I decided to do was, and this is where you have to really make a decision on uh, what's important to you about your photos. So for instance, in Aperture, I had done star ratings and I had organized my images really well. In Aperture, I had done a lot of editing. And so the images looked pretty good in Aperture. So the first decision I had to make is, do I need those raw files, you know, uh, in whatever my new solution is going to be? I decided no, because, uh, you know, bringing those raw files in, there are some applications that claim they can bring in the Aperture edits, but I have tested them all and it's spotty at best. So I decided, no, I don't need raw files. I still have those images on the hard drives if I absolutely need to get to them. So I decided, why not export JPEGs, right? They've already been edited. They already look good. Why not export JPEGs and then use modern software, such as Peak2 or Mylio, to use AI. And I don't have to worry about keywording and all that kind of stuff. Let modern software using AI help me find the images that I want. So that suddenly made a lot more sense than fooling around with raw files. Plus the storage was just a fraction of what it would have been with raw files. So I decided, okay, what I'm going to do is go to Aperture, choose all of my two and three star images. Those are all, you know, legit pictures and export them out as JPEGs organize them in folders by year, 2001, 2002, 2003, and then point a modern application to those JPEGs. In my case, I use Peak2 and let it do its AI object recognition and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, then all I have to do is if I want to find um, Christmas 2004, uh, I can just enter that or enter Christmas tree or enter whatever. And uh, I will get a whole batch of images to choose from. In order to make that work, though, I needed to be able to run Aperture to export all those images out of Aperture, letting Aperture do the exporting. And that's where the story takes another turn. How many images are we talking about here? 200,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that 200,000 in the library or 200,000 after you'd filtered to two and three star? 200,000 after filtering. Okay. How big was the library itself? How many terabytes? 
Uh, well, it's not just one library. So uh, what oh, right. I did with Aperture is I did them. Uh, I did annual libraries. Right. So it was yeah. a series of libraries. So two hundred thousand images. So my first, my reflex would think. I want to export everything as TIFF and I want to save the raw files so I can look at my final edits and redo the edits and, and actually improve on the edits with software that's, you know, much more advanced. And then I would think, well, the TIFFs are going to be like hundreds of megabytes each. So then, okay, 100% JPEGs would be the thing plus the raw files. That's what I would consider doing. I'd want to keep the raw files in case I see a, a photo that I could edit better now than I did 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what a lot of people are going to say. Uh, my pushback on that is that there's a couple pushbacks. One is, are you really going to do that, right? I mean, how much how much free time do you have on your hands to, to do that kind of stuff? Uh, second thing is that if you've used Luminar Neo, if you've used uh, any, of the, any of the modern applications, if you export out a super fine JPEG, Right, a JPEG at let's say ninety, right, full size, uh, that's already been edited. Right, the raw file was already edited. So you take those edits from the raw file and you edit out a high quality JPEG. Then use modern software. You can still do practically anything that you need to do to that image that you would with the original raw file. You know, because you're you're not doing you're not going to be doing a museum show with this stuff, right? I mean, if you are, then you go back and get the raw files. For right. The stuff so these aren't files that you're going to exploit commercially. I I use them in my art. I mean, I'm my own. I'm my own stock library, right? Uh, right. I only okay. use my own images. But yeah, but you're right. They're on the web, right? Most yeah. of the time, they're on the web, right. and I want them to look good. But here's the thing that I push back with my audience all the time: they get really hung up on raw and all that sort of stuff, and I go. This is where things have changed, right? Look at the software you have access to. Okay, even an image that was captured with a six megapixel camera. I have a lot of those, right? Six megapixel raw files. I'm not worried about six megapixels at all. Ah, just use Topaz or any number of applications, of, uh, even in, built into Lightroom now. You can sample up that that bad boy as big as you need. Uh, six megapixels makes no difference anymore. Uh, if you have just a decent file at all, AI editing makes no difference anymore. So I'm just thinking, why torture yourself? <laughs> Export out high quality JPEGs, knowing that we have the tools these days to basically do anything you want. Making that decision was the difference between me succeeding in this project, which I did, and I think just getting bogged down in the mud somewhere in the middle. Now, that's really interesting because we're used to pixel peepers who will say mm -hmm. it's got to be the best resolution, the best file, the raw file and all that. But in the past few years, we've had this transition where now you can get by with JPEGs. And whether or not you use like Fujifilm's film simulations or whatever to give it a, a certain look, or you just take a stock JPEG and edit it, as you say, you can upscale it, you can use AI editing. I think the pixel peepers will never stop peeping pixels. There's a tongue twister not, in there. But no. <laughs> it, is, it is giving tools to photographers that we didn't have even five years ago. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I... 
I publish a lot, right? And I have commercial clients and all that sort of stuff. I have never had anyone complain about image quality, uh, you know, on a deliverable. And they don't know how I got that deliverable, right? You know, they, you know, and so a lot of times I'm using just modern tools to, if I had a terrible situation, get the shot, get the shot, get whatever you can, or pull a shot out of the archives in the best shape that you can, and then make it work, make it work. (laughs) And we can do that now. That's the difference. I think the raw mentality is, I mean, I shoot in raw. I edit mostly in Capture One Pro, my raw files. I love it. I I have three cameras I absolutely adore. I have a Fujifilm X100V. I have a Olympus OM-1. And I have the new Nikon ZF. Those cameras, I mean, I feel like I never need another camera as long as I live in addition to my iPhone Pro Max. They produce fantastic raw files. But once I've done the first edit on that raw file and exported out as a JPEG, I'm just I can live off JPEG from then on because I've already recovered shadow detail. I've yeah. already fixed the blown out highlights. Yeah. I've already done all that stuff. I don't need to do it again. You know, AI can take yeah. it from there. So I'm curious to transition this a bit to the hardware because as Kirk mentioned, we started with a a 2009 white. MacBook. That's the white plastic one. Yeah. There had to be a reason for that. And you also mentioned that the, the files were on a Drobo, which uh, the company Which is no risky at exists. best. Yeah. I also have an old Drobo that just sits quietly. Uh, I think I'm using it as a shelf for some reason. And we have this expectation that, oh, all my photos are on these external hard drives. So they're fine. And then what happens when they're not? So I'd love to hear how you ran into that because I suspect that you you came at it with the, all right, all I have to do is plug this in, grab my photos, move them to something else, and I'm done. Hooray. Clearly, that was not the case. Yeah, there's a couple of things uh, here. First of all, one thing that I do on my Drobos is uh, I do fire them up every six months. And anyone that is storing stuff on hard drives, I, I highly recommend um, spinning them up a couple times a year, you know, to, uh, I mean, I think it helps keep them healthy. And then I also think it helps keep you in touch with what's going on. So I knew my drobos were working, but uh, I also knew that with the proprietary storage system that they had, that, you, you know, I had to, I mean, my images, I had a double whammy because, you know, Aperture, when you do the managed catalog in Aperture, it uses a MySQL database that just, no way you're going to find your masters, you know, easily. You might find one or two, but they, you, you're you're going down a death spiral trying to find your masters and they're, yeah. they're renamed and all that kind of stuff. So I figured the only way to extract those masters is with aperture itself it had the key to the kingdom and i wanted to get those images off drobo even though my drobos are still working i don't know how much longer that's going to be could be a year could be a five years i don't know yeah but once that game's over it's over right and uh and i have a new synology raid uh, drive set up that works great i wanted to get stuff onto that so i'm looking at this old hardware 
the problem is, as we all know, you can't run Aperture on modern software on modern OS. So I have this thing that I call freeze it in time. And this is something that I do. I talked about it in the article, which is I have a lot of computers here in my studio. <laughs> if I turned off back, you would see something that would, you know, you go, oh, my God, how do you how do you even work in that? <laughs> and uh, the the reason why I have so many computers is because they get to a certain point and then I don't update them anymore. I leave the software on there and I leave the OS on there. And then that way, if I need to go back and get into some proprietary library, whether it be Aperture, Capture One, or something else, I have a tool to do that. And in this case, I had to go all the way back to that plastic MacBook, which, you know, first of all, hats off to Apple. That thing still fires up, still works. The screen still works. Uh, that has Aperture 3.6 on it, which I needed. And so then I connect the Drobo to that. They spun up and I'm going, okay, I'm in the game, right? I've got a computer that's running Aperture. I have the Drobos. Let's get all those images off those Drobos onto Synology. And so I would open up the library in Aperture, let Aperture do the exporting high quality JPEGs uh, onto another drive, and then uh, put them in my Synology backup system. And this took a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> because you said yeah, because up an that's export a really slow job. Mac with a hard it's drive a really on it. Slow Mac. <laughs> yeah, with a hard drive <laughs> a on the Mac pictures. and hard drives in the in the Drobo. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you set it up and then you, you know, you go on with the rest of your life. And I would set some of these jobs up on Friday, right? Because, and then come back to work on Monday and it'd be halfway through. I mean, we're this was for about, a, a single yeah. one year library you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. Now I have all of those JPEGs. All of them, high quality JPEGs, 90, 90 plus JPEG, you know, 90 quality uh, JPEGs from those original RAW files that were edited in Aperture. So they look good. I mean, they look really good, but they're manageable. And then now I have them on a Synology drive and I'm using Peak2. Peak2, you know, ingests all that information, all those JPEGs, and then it runs its AI using object recognition, and it applies tags and keywords to all those images. And then it allows me to find them, you know, searching on just common terms. So now I have all those 200,000 images on a Synology drive. Synology doesn't even care, right? 200,000 JPEGs, bah, you yeah. know, it's nothing, <laughs> right? Well, if you're talking, you said earlier, some of them are six megapixels. So yeah. That's less than a terabyte, probably, right? Those are potato chips. They're yeah. potato chips, I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're nothing. Even the raw uh, files aren't that, that big back then. Exactly. Yeah. Very true. But uh, now I have them all. I have them all, and, and Peak2 has done a great job. There's Mylio and Peak2. They're both excellent pieces of software. Peak2's newer. Mylio's been around longer. I like them both. You know, it just depends on your preference, just like anything else. Yeah. But using artificial intelligence and object recognition, you don't have to worry about keywording or any of that stuff. All of that is taken care of. Now, people will go, just like the people that are pixel peepers, 
they go, well, if I don't have precise keywording on every image, yeah. then when I enter it, I'm not going to get that image. And you're right. You're not going to get that image using the system I'm using. You're going to get 100 images, yeah. right, that sort of fit whatever. It's not that hard to look at 100 images. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, you know, it takes me 10 seconds. Oh, oh, there it is, right? So I don't need it to be a bullseye. I just need it to get me in the right room. And, uh, you know, that's what, that's the state of AI object recognition right now. I'm sure it will get more precise over time. But right now, if it whittles it down from 200,000 to 150, I'm a happy camper. So we'll put a link in the show notes to an episode we did about Peak 2 with, I think it was the lead developer. Um, what I find really interesting here is that we're able to offload all of this thinking and doing and time wasting. You're talking about keywording. You have to put keywords in every photo. We're able to offload this. And we may not find every single photo that we want because maybe mm -hmm. some of them won't get recognized. But we're able to do so much. As you mentioned with AI editing, it's it's saving a lot of time. You know, I I, I read things. I, I see videos on YouTube and I read articles about people about important to keyword your photos in Lightroom and spend all this time and, and rate them and, and star them and all this. And it's like, how much time are you spending where now you got tools, you just type a few letters to get, you know, where's Christmas, right? And And it's automatic. And it makes you think... It makes me think of all the things I've done in the past with files and backups and archives and labeling and all that and how useless it is. It, it I know it's it's a little sad to think about, but it's the tools that you had at the time. Right? Exactly. The the thing about photographers that I think is interesting, and I've been working with photographers forever, and uh, you know I have a podcast for photographers, and I write to photographers, and I go on workshops and all that. The thing I've noticed about photographers is that once photographers learn how to do something, and that's either behind the camera or in front of the computer, they they don't let go of that easily. And, um, you know, part of it is it took some work to learn Photoshop, right, or whatever it happens to be. It took some work to learn how to do a mask, you know, on someone's hair that took you an hour to do that you no longer have to do right? You don't have to do that anymore. You know, you, you click on the person and say, you know, make a mask. But there's that resistance to change and that somehow the new tools aren't going to be as good as the old way of doing things. And in some instances, something that you do in 15 seconds might not be absolutely as precise as something that took you an hour. But if it's 95% as precise, you can probably do the last 5%, you know, rather quickly. And it's just a matter of getting used to doing things differently. And uh, it's funny for such a creative bunch of folks, and I'm including myself because I am a photographer, yeah. for such a creative bunch of folks, we are so resistant to doing things new ways. It's, um, it's I find it interesting. Definitely. Okay, one last question before we finish. Could you have mm -hmm. done this in a virtual machine? So a virtual machine, you use software like Parallels Desktop or VMware Fusion. You mm -hmm. can load an old version of Mac OS. So if you didn't have that 2009 laptop, could you have done it there or would it have just been too slow? 
Did you think that's of that? a great that's a great question? I haven't tested that. Uh, I think in theory, yes. In practicality, um, you would find out real fast if it worked or not. If you didn't have that old hardware, I mean, obviously, you, then you have to go to, as I say, plan D or plan E or plan F, you know, down the line. And that might be in there somewhere. But I would think in theory, that would be possible. But you would have to have a 32-bit Mac because the older operating systems are 32-bit and not 64-bit. But we're not going to go into that sort of mind <laughs> field either because that's too complicated. Um, Derek, thank you very much. The article is called The Rescue Mission, A Story of Bankruptcy, Obsolescence, and the Fate of My Pictures from 20 Years Ago. This is quite enlightening, and I'm taking away two things that I want to talk about in future episodes. One is AI editing and the fact that we can stop peeping pixels. And the second is getting stuck in that rut. And mm -hmm. doing things complicated when there are newer, simpler ways to do things. So, Derek, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay, Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got? I have a Christmas present. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But actually, it's a very cool photo kind of related Christmas present. Uh, it is a book. It's a book by Norman Mailer called Moonfire, The Epic Journey of Apollo 11. It is not just you know a book about. It is filled with images, and if you like space stuff at all, this just seems like a, a huge treasure of behind the scenes and historical images. And I have a feeling I'm going to geek out on this in a serious way. I, I know the book. It's been out for a long time. It was reissued uh, a few years ago. It's really fascinating. And that's mine. What do you have this week? Okay, so for me. I actually binged a series of movies recently. I realized that I oh. hadn't seen the Harry Potter movies in years. So I watched all eight of them on eight evenings. And oh, wow. Because the seven is in two parts, right? Right, so it's right. eight evenings. Yeah. And what really struck me when I got to the third movie – now, you've seen all the movies. You've read the books, I'm sure – um, the first two are like children's books and then it starts getting dark and violent and all that. And as they grow up – what struck me was the visual changes as you go from the first two movies to the third, when all of a sudden the color grading is totally different. And it made me think about color grading, which is not something we talk about. Um, if you're like a wedding photographer, you're going to worry about color grading to make all your photos consistent. But for most of what we do, you don't need to. But you see it in movies where they have a kind of a color palette that reproduces throughout the whole movie. The third one was dark and it had that high black point look. And... Then as you go on, each director did it a little bit differently until the final two, the seven part one and part two, had a very distinctive, almost old film look. I, I think the fourth or the fifth kind of looked like Kodachrome. So each mm -hmm. one had uh, had its own character of color grading. And it's not something you pay attention to in movies unless you're seeing multiple movies like in this case, right, when you're seeing a, a series. Uh, if you watch Oppenheimer, you'll see a, a great deal of color grading to set the time and the atmosphere and all of that. And color grading is done in every single movie ever made so that a character looks the same in one shot and another where the light's different, the weather's different and all that. But in the Harry Potter movies, it, it really stood out watching the eight movies one after another. The other thing is – you watch the actors who started out really young and then they get really old. It was about 10 years <laughs> or more between yeah. the beginning and the end. You see them as they learn how to act because they really weren't that good in the first two movies. Um, and 
when you realize all of the amazing adult actors they had who were mentoring them, um, you understand why they became good actors. They're good movies. I wouldn't say they're great movies as a series. I think it's kind of good if you grew up with them. So I, I, my son was 10 years old when we first started reading the Harry Potter. So I saw all the movies back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a nice experience to remind me of all that stuff. If you haven't seen them in a while, worth checking out. So it's all the Harry Potter movies, all of them. <laughs> nice. Well, it's also in- intriguing because I think in general, oftentimes you'll have – movies that want to have that consistency because you know what you're coming back to and so they don't want to stray too far from the you know the the solution that they've come up with but that third Harry Potter movie I think really put a flag in the ground because it was you know completely new director completely new tone and the material was able to handle that just fine if three and four had all just sort of felt like one and two, it would have quickly felt a little old. Oh, yeah, we've we've kind of seen this. I mean, I haven't seen any of them, but I, I get the impression that like the – You've the never fast seen the Harry Potter movies. No, 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 no I'm sorry. I've, I, I have seen the Harry Potter movies. Uh, I get the impression that like the Fast and Furious movies, th- those – to me, seem like ones where they don't want to stray too far because you're there to see, you know, absurd car stuff um, and, you know, super drama and action and all that. And maybe they'll do a little bit of uh, visual tone shifting, but that's not the point, right? Whereas with the Harry Potter movies, the tone is a very important progression throughout the series. It's not just the visual, like it's the yeah. story and everything. So. It works out really well. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.